0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, and welcome to UCLA. Welcome to UC Global Health Day. We're pleased that you all came out on such a beautiful Saturday morning uh, and Saturday afternoon to learn about global health. And uh, we're pleased. We think we have a very um, exciting day for you. Uh, I want to extend special welcome to distinguished guests, Dr. Haile DeBas, who is the director of the UC Global Health Institute, former dean and chancellor at um, UCSF. Uh, Dr. Jaime Sepulveda, the Director of Global Health Sciences at UCSF. Dr. Richard Olds, the Dean of the School of Medicine, our newest School of Medicine at UC Riverside. We welcome you, Mr. Robert Sun, who's a member of our board and the uh, uh, CEO of the Chinese, the American Chinese CEO Society, pulling together Chinese and American CEOs in, in with a great interest in health and in global health. So welcome to all. All of you, and we, we look forward to a, to a wonderful day. Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to uh, introduce Dr. Tim Brewer who is a professor of medicine, a specialist in infectious diseases. He is the vice provost for cross campus and interdisciplinary affairs, and also the chairman of the board of directors of the consortium of universities of global health. Uh, He came to UCLA two years ago, and it's been a pleasure to have him here and to see our global health activities uh, prosper. So Dr. Brewer.
1: Thank you, Tom. On behalf of Chancellor Jean Block, Executive Vice Chancellor, and Provost Scott Waugh, and the entire UCLA community, I'm delighted to welcome you to UC Global Health Day, the fifth annual one, if I counted correctly. We're absolutely thrilled to have you here. This is a very exciting and challenging time in global health. Since 1990, we have gained globally on average six years of life expectancy and infant mortality has gone down forty one percent yet at the same time eight hundred women will die today from complications of pregnancy and childbirth and that's almost all preventable you're going to hear in the first plenary talk about cancer. What you may not know is that 65% of all deaths around the world are from noncommunicable diseases. Yet of the roughly 32 billion dollars that was spent in development assistance for health in 2013, less than 400 million was to address noncommunicable diseases, but 80% of those deaths will occur in low and middle-income countries. Now, you may think of global health as a problem for low- and middle-income countries. In Central America, the leading cause of death, premature death, for adult males is injury trauma. So that's homicide, suicide, road accidents. It's exactly the same cause, a leading cause of premature death for Hispanic males in L.A. County. If you drive from West Los Angeles, where we are right now, to South Los Angeles, infant mortality rates double. And if you're an African-American woman in Antelope Bay, your child has an infant mortality rate that's roughly equivalent to that of a woman giving birth in Jamaica and higher than the average woman giving birth in Sri Lanka. We are all aware that in 2010, Rwanda and Wyoming had roughly the same number of physicians The problem with that is there are 600,000 people in Wyoming. There are 18 million people in Rwanda. But you may not be aware that 43 of California's 58 counties have a primary physician shortage. So this is a challenge for all of us, and we're really excited about UC Global Health Institute bringing you all together for this important day. So this is a collaboration across campuses and disciplines that's really tremendous. I'm really looking forward to hearing the exciting solutions to these difficult problems. I want to thank Tom Coates and the Center for World Health and his entire team, Michael Rodriguez and the Blum Center for Poverty and Latin American Health, Steve Wallace and Nines Ponses at the Fielding School of Public Health. And everyone who was involved in bringing this important day together, we're thrilled to have you here. And finally, if you get the chance, go see the UCLA Sex Squad tonight. These are a group of undergraduates who will give you the most interesting and entertaining perspective on some important global health issues. Welcome to Los Angeles, and I hope you have a terrific and educational day. Thank you, Tim. That was just absolutely terrific. It's my pleasure now to introduce
0: a a man who has touched many people's lives. He certainly has touched my life. Uh, He is a visionary. He is someone who thinks big and makes wonderful things happen. He did wonderful things as the dean and chancellor at UCSF and has created the UC Global Health Institute, Dr. Hailey DeBas.
2: Welcome, everybody, and thank you, Tom. Uh, I want to thank uh, UCLA for hosting the two, two, 2015 Global Health Day. And now I'm just uh, delighted and proud to present to you our 2015 keynote speaker, a close friend of mine, Dr. Patrick Sunshong, a surgeon, a scientist, and a pioneer of novel therapies for cancer and diabetes. I could introduce him to you by describing his many achievements, for example, that he developed two successful global multi-billion pharmaceutical companies, that he founded Nant networks uh, an ecosystem of companies to create transformative global health information or that he and his beautiful wife Michelle who's sitting in the front row here created the Chan Sunshang Family Foundation and founded the Chan Sunshang Institute of Molecular Medicine a whole research campus here in Los Angeles but instead, I'd like to make the introduction more personal. I have known, I've known him for over 35 years. Uh-huh. Patrick, Michelle, my wife and I came together from British Columbia to California in 1980. We were partners in research, and in clinical surgery for many years. As a postdoctoral fellow and young faculty member at UCLA, Patrick was brilliant, hardworking, imaginative and unafraid to, to, to to think out of the box and to tread on grounds that others would feel too difficult to navigate. Patrick represents the quintessential example of the American dream fulfilled. From a humble postdoctoral fellowship from, fellow from South Africa to one of the wealthiest and most visionary leaders in the American pharmaceutical industry in a matter of some 25 years. But Patrick and Michelle never for, forgot their beginnings, or their friends, and together with their special understanding and commitment to global health, they have been the major benefactors that have funded UCGHI for the past several years. So allow me, Patrick and Michelle, to express profound appreciation and gratitude on my own behalf and that of the entire University of California Global Health Institute for your generosity, I thank you. <laughs> Those of you who saw the 60 Minutes program on Dr. Sun Xiong recently heard the interviewer uh, CNN Dr. Sanjay Gupta a UCLA graduate who was a student when Patrick and I were on the faculty here, described him as the genius kid. I can do no better than that. So I'll give you Dr. Sun-Shang, the title of his presentation is A Fundamental Transformation in Treating Cancer Cancer, Combining Modern Technology and in the immune system, this will be a treat. Please welcome Dr. Sunshaw.
3: Well, thank you, Haile. Um, it's an honor for me to be here, um, and especially uh, what a treat for me to be here with at Hailey's Institute that he dreamt of, um, conceived of, and has built. Uh, I've known Hailey, uh, since the days of Vancouver, British Columbia, where he was so committed at that point even to, uh, I recall, his efforts in Eritrea uh, and the elements of really committed to, to work on a global basis. I also recall when we came together from Vancouver General Hospital as his PhD, uh, undergrad, and came to UCLA. And my first paycheck, and I said to Michelle, I think they made a mistake, because my paycheck at, UC, at, at Vancouver Journal, my annual salary was, I think, $12,000. And my first paycheck here was $22,000 annually. And I said, they must have made a mistake, because it's, it's doubled. <laughs> so that's the uh, element of joy that we had uh, because it was all about the work. So today I wanted to give you this talk and I figured out we really should talk about um, this issue of, 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 of cancer. And this is a sorry, this is a diagram. Let me take this off. This is a diagram that you see that is put out and Bill Gates tweeted this diagram actually. And it's interesting, when you look at this infectious disease and you talk about non-communicable diseases, and within the element of non-communicable diseases, there's this little sliver down there called cancer. And you would think, therefore, that really the element that one would focus, and you hear about the $34 billion and over $400 million only spent on non-communicable diseases, and to me, that's shocking because I think it's an element that we need to understand: the global burden of disease. Actually, there is a crisis, and this is the final report of the independent task force uh, and the Council of Foreign Relations. And I quote what they say: that the gravest health threats facing us, or low- and middle-income countries, are not the plagues, or parasites, and blights, but the everyday diseases that the international community understands and could address, but fails to take action against. So that's a sad statement of affairs, and I think uh, it would be appropriate, therefore, for me to try and highlight what this is all about, and what this is about is this increasing global burden of cancer. So in 2012, there were 14 million new cancer cases and 8.2 million deaths per year. By 2030, there'll be 22 million new diagnoses a year with 13 million deaths per year. But what is very sad is that the cancer divide is growing really worse. And I think the next slide shows us quite dramatically. If you look at the upper-middle income areas, the number of deaths in the 52 countries happily is flattening out and the high-income countries happily is actually decreasing. Now you look at the cancer divide in the lower-income countries, and dramatically the number of deaths is actually increasing, um, and as well as the lower-income countries. So we have a real cancer divide in terms of this issue of this crisis of cancer. And these are slides I've t- taken out of the report, of the foreign foreign relations report. And here's a patient um, in Uganda in breast cancer and takes a month to see a doctor raise the money for a treatment. Here's a patient with cervical cancer and 300,000 women die from cervical cancer each year and mainly young women, low- and middle-income countries. In this country, cervical cancer is a rare disease. And here's a patient, terminally ill patient, in Burma. And cancer is the second largest cause of non-communicable deaths in these countries. So these affect real people, real lives, uh, real outcomes, and unfortunately, um, we now face um, this issue of cancer. Ironically, the science in the last four years has shown um, a frightening thought to even now the high-income countries like ourselves that, in fact, cancer now is an element not of a single clone, which we thought before, but multiclonal disease, and in fact resistance is a fait accompli. That the time to recurrence is simply the interval required for the subclone to repopulate the lesion. While this is a scary thought, this is also exciting in the sense that for the first time there'll be now a whole new wave of money spent um, to try and address this particular issue. And this paper just was published in Nature. And I share with you this uh, patient who had multiple myeloma, I beg your pardon, melanoma. And there is a mutation called BRAF. So this BRAF mutation... Uh, a targeted drug which is the magical therapy could then treat this BRAF mutation and within weeks this is the magic that happened to the patient. So if we had gone down the assumption which for the years and years and years we've gone down that actually cancer is a single clone and therefore targeted therapy would cure this disease and we would have this magical cure and the entire industry has gone down this for the last 40 years, and just recently we found to our horror that it's not a single clone, that there's thousands of clones, and after you hit out one clone, this is what happens in nine weeks, so I think the realization that we've taken nine years to develop this targeted therapy and nine weeks to relapse has just dawned on us, as a society in the United States. And that's what's given us the impetus um, after we developed this drug called Abraxane in 2005. For the last decade, we've quietly been pursuing the capacity, uh, the, both the technological capacity, the genomic capacity, and the treatment of how do you go after thousands of clones in a single human patient. So I'd like to share that with you for the rest of the talk and then also propose that this is a capacity, believe it or not, that could be pr- pr- put out there for the rest of the world, just like bangladesh 's leapfrog uh, without having telephone wires by having uh, t- uh, wireless te- uh, uh, cell phones. we can leapfrog um, cancer care um, in the deepest parts of Africa, so the idea really is is what How do you go about this? So I showed this slide in ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, in 2007. And some of you understand this idea of pancreatic cancer as a death sentence. Two months after this, most patients say the patient um, is dead. Yet there was a proposal and a treatment that we had initiated that had the ability to have patients free of this disease within... um, Within a month, and really have um, long term chronic survival. And to this day, we have patients now four years, five years, and six years, and seven years alive, which means there's a completely rethink of chemotherapy. The standards of care was to give you a maximum tolerated dose, wipe out what they thought was a single clone, and at the same time, wipe out your immune system. However, if it's not a single clone, you give lowest dose of multiple drugs of chemotherapy, maintain the immune system, and this is what you get. So this was a challenge of 2007 to, to this day, and at the ASCO in this June, we'll be presenting data about talking about the multiclonal disease and how we need to completely rethink our care, which then takes you to the next question. And i And, obviously, time doesn't permit me to get into a very technical uh, discussion about genomics. But this is uh, the future where we can take the 3 billion bases of the DNA, measure the 22,000 genes, and measure the millions of proteins all in a single step. We call this GPS cancer, genomic proteome seek. But by GPSing cancer, we can actually identify the molecular address of the cancer cell in real time, which is completely personalized to every patient. If you can do that, if you can GPS cancer and find the molecular address, you can then find the protein target, you can then target the cancer. So that's the concept we've been pursuing for the last decade and had to build the capacity that could actually measure the entire genome the uh, entire um, exome the, de- the 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 genetic sequence the entire proteome meaning the transcriptome to f- so we can find the drug and again this is uh, suppose facing the impossible because the country is still facing trying to work on the genome and we said <laughs> working on the genome is futile unless you worked on the proteome, and working on the proteome is futile unless you worked on the peptide, and so that you can get to the drug. I'm happy to say we've now done that. That's the GPS, which we'll be announcing on 3,000 patients, and we can do this entire analysis in 27 seconds now. So we'll show you that um, soon, hopefully. The question then is, what would you do with that? Well, we have in our body these T-cells and this is a video put together by NIH and by Cambridge and these are the T-cells this is actual video of the T-cells attacking the cancer cell and you'll hear the music which is not my music but it's the Star Wars music that the NIH put on as it comes on but you begin to see the amazing activity of these T-cells and the T-cells actually have within their body these granules and these granules Go and actually go into the cancer cell um, and destroy the cancer cell. And here you have the cancer cell, okay, they must have put it on mute, but that's fine. The cancer cell being killed uh, by these T cells, which then says we have in our body a natural mechanism, protect the human body uh, to kill the, the cancer cell. And if only we could harness what I call the natural biology of the human being and actually begin to really take that and harness that. So the whole world now is focusing on this thing called chimeric antigen receptors, whereby you can identify the antigens on the cancer cell, engineer the T cell, and put it into the T cell. So this is the opportunity then is to really identify each patient's unique cancer antigen by this next generation genomic sequencing and then have an effector cell and in that way create this dance of proteins that you just saw and kill the cancer cell. This is not hypothetical. This is real. This is something not only we are working on but we are now in four phase ones and one phase two and what would be beautiful would be if you imagine if you could actually grow the cell in a blood bag. If you could grow the cell in the blood bag, you could create blood banks around the world, green crosses, red crosses, where you could then identify everybody's cancer through a global infrastructure of supercomputing, identify the antigens, create the antibodies, put it into these effector cells, and kill these cancer cells. Let me show you that possibility. So the first thing we need to do was create this global network infrastructure where fiber could travel around the world because the amount of data that's generated out of a human genome is a terabyte. So imagine um, 1,000, 10,000 patients a day, that's 10,000 terabytes a day, And there's no infrastructure in the world that could move data that fast. So we took over the national lambda rail very early on, which integrated all the universities together and actually ran the Large Hadron Collider from Bern. And that's how God's particle was discovered with astrophysicists all working together. If we could do that, why could we not do that for cancer? And you think about God's particle in a sense, that this dance of proteins is happening in every human being every day and the opportunity to create supercomputers around the world and, and, and then do the genomic analysis in seconds. So in October 2012, we built this, launched this, and we created this what we call the Cancer Knowledge Action Network. So the infrastructure was now in place. The next question was then how to create the genomic sequencing. We built that, and the next question was then how to go and create the effector cell. Well, the genomic sequencing, by 2012, we had created the genomic sequencing and taken the entire nation's cancer genome atlas and 6,000 genomes in 3,000 patients and showed that we could actually process them. Uh, by 2013, we had taken 687 whole genomes and 17,000 exomes, over 16,000 genomes processed. And Now by 2015, we're doing almost 100 a month, and soon thousands a month. Genomics England has just launched itself, and uh, that is now connected uh, to us, uh, and we'll be doing the informatics for Genomics England. So this. Global cooperative, or what are called the Cancer Learning Network, is now in place. The next question is how could you actually now find this um, magic bullet of this immune effector cell? And ironically, a cell was discovered at UBC, the, the place were, from which Hailey and I came, called the natural killer cell. And this is an activated natural killer cell line, it's a stem cell line that could target. Uh, a tumor cell could adhere, create a synapse connection, had these uh, granules within them, and could release the granules and kill, kill the cell. The challenge was to find out what were the targets. Now with the genomics program in place and the proteomics program in place, we can find the targets. The next challenge was to find the human library of antibodies and we now have a quadrillion uh, human library available to us. We can now take that library, integrate it into this natural killer cell, and all of a sudden you'd have a targeted activated natural killer cell, which we call Tank. So we'll be launching tanks um, on this nation um, uh, soon, (laughs) but for good cause. So here is, this is actually just published, it's in press, but it just got published. Um, um, uh, Here is a patient now, patient cells, and the red is HER2 positive, meaning this is a breast cancer cell that has this antigen called HER2. And these green are normal breast cells. And here you can barely see, but you will soon see as I play the video, a natural killer cell that's been activated with a target to target that cell with an antibody against HER2. And if that's the case, it will go around, not touch that cell, not touch that cell, not touch that cell, not, and then find that cell and start killing it. So that's doing exactly that. So this is about to go into Phase 2 uh, trials. Um, what's exciting is that this one particular cell uh, in the time-lapse, when we put multiple of these HER2-positive breast cancer cells, it's actually a serial killer. So the capacity is available, the technology is available, the science is available. I think what we need is the leadership Um, the vision uh, that everyday diseases the international community understands and could address but fails to take action against. is organizations like this that could help uh, push that agenda. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for a very uh, scintillating
0: conversation, a very scintillating discussion. I would like to ask you a few questions and then we can uh, open it up to the audience. How do we translate this? Your, your first slides were very compelling, showing the increase in cancers, particularly in low and middle income countries. How do we now translate what seems to be very high tech, perhaps expensive uh, technologies to
3: countries that can least afford them? You know, while it seems expensive, it actually um, isn't because of the opportunity with cloud computing, wireless technology. Um, just think about it. Uh, think of the concept that every human being on the planet could be an astronaut. So if you think of that concept, one could then wirelessly uh, obtain not only information, but you could create what are called mission control centers here in this country... And export that kind of information in real time, remotely, um, in any country in the world. You clearly have to build capacity in some countries where you have clinics, just clinics, regular clinics, where you can measure blood pressure, where you can actually have a simple thing like an X-ray. We're not talking about highly sophisticated information. It's just the ability to make a diagnosis, then the next question is, could we accelerate the treatment into 21st century care as opposed to going through standard high-dose chemotherapy, which, by the way, they can't even afford, and you put them into this toxicity where the drugs are worse than the disease, especially in a third-world country they can't maintain. Um, and you, the, 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 the chemotherapy agents today are all generic. But giving them what I consider low-dose which revolutionally actually uses the chemotherapy agents to stimulate the immune system rather than to wipe out the immune system. And then adding these blood bags like a green cross, red cross uh, locally and train them to grow these cells which is quite literally trainable. Um, It sounds high tech, it is high tech, (laughs) but it's all very practically doable.
0: So if we were to, say, take a country like South Africa, high burden of certain cancers, cervical cancer, for example, and you showed the dramatic slide of the, of the woman recovering from uh, cervical cancer surgery, um, but a country with a lot of uh, intellectual potential, a lot of financial potential, but also a high burden of HIV, what would it take to make this a practical, everyday... Uh, solution in a country like that.
3: And this is where the, not only the NGOs, the government, but really private sector have to come together and philanthropists all have to come together. You know, I'm, As I said, I know very much about South Africa and the tragedy of how they treated HIV early and thought of it as a disease that could be treated with some other non, um, the drugs that are currently available. So the opportunity to go to a country like South Africa, work directly with the government, who are very educated now and understand this opportunity, create the infrastructure around the fiber infrastructure exists. Um, a, literally a machine could be put in place in South Africa. Literally the machines themselves are robotic, believe it or not, that actually does the sequencing. Five people could be trained the results could go from the machine right into the fibre, all the way across the the, the ocean into the supercomputer, super and results be back. So all of this is uh, doable. Where you do need capacity, therefore you need uh, the Ga- people like the Gates Foundation and the Slim Foundation and, and our organisations and and people like Milken Foundation and etc. Where where one of the things the um, countries like ourselves could export instead of war some of this knowledge um, and really bring this about with that kind of capacity and then support really I believe the local community to be trained to deliver the care
0: so that's the challenge, I think, and I would invite uh, people to uh, come forward to the mics if uh, if you want to ask uh, Dr. Sun Jiang some questions about this. Um, this is taking this is, is it's a this is a very different kind of presentation than we typically hear at global health conferences. Uh, we hear uh, about uh, the burden of infectious diseases. We learn about certain kinds of capacity building. We hear about women's rights. We hear about human rights. We hear about a lot of these things. This is, 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 could create a, technical, a technological revolution. The thing that, one of the things that impressed me is you used the word uh, collaborative science and then you referred to the burn Collider, and there are other professions, other uh, scientific enterprises, like physics, like astronomy, that is much more collaborative. How do we make that happen in medicine, which often seems like a one-on-one kind
3: of activity? And that's a challenge, right? I mean, I come, we all come from this academic community where just even getting the UC systems together <laughs> <laughs> is its own right challenge. And then, you know, um, trying to get competing organizations like Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic to work together. I think once the world realizes that um, you are us, meaning the following, that because of the genomic uh, heterogeneity of cancer now, that there are thousands of mutations per patient, and every uh, mutation is different from the other. There is no one single institution that will have enough patients to know that, that mutation, which treatment to give, which means you really need collaborative science like the astrophysicists to put all the data together for common sharing of outcomes, Not, not the proprietary information outcomes against that particular mutation to have what you call an adaptive learning system. Um, That's what we're trying to push and pursue and send the message, that uh, this is a common cause. That's the only way you're going to learn how you can actually get to the path to the cure is to share this information on outcomes. And everybody can still have their their proprietary uh, opportunity to do this discovery Um, and grants, et cetera, and that's how the system works. But I argue that the system of drug development for cancer has been flawed for years because we have a self-fulfilling prophecy. The self-fulfilling prophecy is that drugs are approved by the FDA when there's actually a one-month, two-month improvement in survival or, or, or response. So you have a self-fulfilling prophecy that all you're doing is going after this metastatic cell and getting one or two months, and you're ignoring the cancer stem cell, which is what you're not actually treating. So you're winning the battle and losing the war. But that's all we've been doing. What's exciting is this innate immune system actually goes after the cancer stem cell. So that is really, when you're really, really ask what the agenda would be, is that imagine us wiping out cancer at the cancer stem cell using low-dose chemotherapy and these innate cells in Bangladesh um, or in the deepest parts of South Africa. So that's the opportunity that we really have here. So the question really is... is, is in his field of melanoma, this mutation we showed, it's a mutation of a gene called BRAF. And, and by giving the drug a BRAF mutation, he says you've shown a pro- progression-free survival of over six months. And what happens after that? Should you be looking at just that mutation and looking at um, the other mutations? And the answer is much more complex than that because we actually were flawed in thinking that by looking at the mutation and then giving the drug against that mutation, that the cor- correlation is a one-to-one. Meaning, you would assume that you, if you have a BRAF mutation, and giving a drug against BRAF protein would be the right thing to do. It turns out that sometimes you have a BRAF mutation, and that's representing an ASCO, that is actually silent that mutation is actually silent and dormant and downstream the protein don't, doesn't get expressed so giving a BRAF drug against that patient is actually futile sometimes it's not silent so therefore it's positive which means you do the rna and you find and you give that drug and it works but unfortunately what happens is that you awaken the other silent genes and there's thousands of them that are silent that need to be woken And as they woken, it means you need to follow that. And the way we do that now is a thing called circulating tumor cell, where we can actually measure not the genes, but the proteins downstream. And that's what I mean by GPS, genomic proteomic sequencing. The country is still stuck in genomic analysis of 200 gene panels, when there are actually 22,000 genes. And so that means you need to do a whole genome sequencing, which is 3 billion bases measuring, maintaining 22,000 genes. And even if they go to that stack, I believe they're still stuck because you need to measure the RNA downstream, which is the proteins. And there's 200,000 RNA and 2 million proteins. So this is when I started doing this work and I said, you're boiling the ocean, but you have to boil the ocean in order to find that one protein. And this is when I talk about the Large Hadron Collider because that's God's particle, so to speak. Um, and my, my thought is that you have to find God's particle in everybody every day in real time. And that was a challenge that I thought was a fantastic challenge <laughs> that we wanted to take on since 2005. And until we actually did it, nobody would believe it. And so we've done it. We're running it, uh, and we're presenting this in in, in in June. And I hope that answers your technical question, that, yeah, not only we have to measure the BRAF, but you need to measure the RNA transcription of the BRAF and downstream, and then measure the entire... 22,000 genes, not just that one gene,
0: and also just just one Actually, chunk. You, okay, yeah, we I understand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to chat with
3: you afterwards. <laughs> <office. laughs> Pat Conrad from the School of Veterinary Medicine and from UCGHI from the One Health Center of Expertise
1: and I would like to thank you for this inspiring talk that you've given and also for the incredible support that you and your lovely wife Michelle have given to UCGHI.
3: Um, we're all very grateful. So mine is a much, much simpler
0: question. <laughs> but, but I would like to point out it's because of, of support like yours that we can have
3: UC Global Health Day and incredible young people like you just heard from um, so my question is, in terms of identifying the the cancers that you're targeting um, initially, at least, um, have you selected certain cancers as your primary targets um, at this point? Well, thank you for the question, and thank you for the um, the. That's another myth we need to fight: that the anatomy of the cancer actually doesn't matter. Mm that it's actually because we now have for the first time understood the cancer at the cellular level, it transcends all physical anatomy, meaning the following. We called breast cancer breast cancer only because, believe it or not, surgeons removed the tumor from the breast and was uh, called breast cancer, and then of course, cervical cancer. We've just discovered, for example, when we do the molecular profiling of a patient with a cervical cancer, the patient actually had a... a um, hormonal overexpression, um, uh, receptor overexpression, treated with a drug from a patient with a breast cancer. So this next myth that we need to fight through is that the physical anatomy doesn't matter. The cancer cell doesn't rec- recognize physical anatomy. So which means, unfortunately, all our training <laughs> for 40 years, when you become a breast cancer specialist, a lung cancer specialist, a melanoma specialist, is actually flawed and actually takes you down the wrong line of thinking. We've now discovered multiple, multiple patients where a melanoma patient should be receiving a colon cancer, so-called colon cancer drug, based on its molecular profile. So there's a whole new set of educational training that needs to happen where you need what you call clinical scientists, molecular scientists, to treat clinical patients. I just want to emphasize, I don't think there's any one single magic bullet at all, period, for cancer, because of the... um, I'm going to give you almost another scary thought. (laughs) Uh, I believe because we've become a multicellular organism as opposed to from the time of the nematode, (laughs) that is really been the beginnings of the causation of cancer. It's actually a physiological phenomenon from the cancer stem cell in the normal stem cell and you've got billions of letters and they misread. The misread is actually a physiological phenomenon, and you have your natural killer cell to actually clean that up. So you will always forever have this phenomenon of cancer. Sometimes it's benign, or tumor rather than cancer. Sometimes it's malignant. It's the point of time when the malignant cell gets out of hand from the primary tumor. primary tumor is fully curable. What I don't think people have recognized, I believe, that the cancer stem cell, the cancer primary tumor cell, and the cancer metastatic cell are three different cell types with three different biologies, three different mechanisms, and it's the metastatic cell that we've been pursuing for 40 years. And I just speak now for the first time, head over the National Cancer Institute, one of the comprehensive cancer centers that admitted we've been chasing a cancer cell that doesn't matter. The cancer cell that does matter is actually the stem cell and all the primary tumor cell as we capture it before it becomes metastatic. So I think um, it's going to be this continuum. I would urge, as you start doing your work, it really get at the fundamentals of the molecular work down to the protein receptors, the protein pathways, and, and you'll see it'll cross over whether it be head and neck that you're doing, whether you're doing melanoma, or it'll actually cross over completely. And the work in cancer in stem cells is crossing over into cancer stem cells. The work in surgery, primary tumors will cross over into metastasis. And when you get into metastatic disease, I think it's a combination of everything, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, to get to the stem cell. Yeah, and I think, as I said, one of the things of, of trying to create this mission control center is also an educational center. Because I think, you know, when you talk about cancer prevention, in my mind, simple things like smoking, etc. I think all the things that everybody understands. But I think what people have not understood is really stress. Uh, and what people talk about, you know, Chinese medicine, alternative medicines, yoga, um, acupuncture. I don't think people have underestimated really, the innate immune system, yet your body is actually your body is actually protecting you uh, from cancer, and stress, in, in its broad terms, is really an important element to, to address in the terms of prevention.
4: turns out that
3: infectious disease is tied completely to causation of cancer. So you think of cervical cancer, the um, HPV virus, you think of the Epstein-Barr virus, you think of hepatitis C, they all result in cancer. So the, con- the, 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 the connection is not only real, um, uh, it's you know, seen in, in, in the clinical world. What's exciting, however, there's an actual common effective cell both against viruses again, and cancer cells, and it turns out to be this natural killer cell that you and I have circulating in our body. that represents only 15% of white cells. And so it's like the holy grail that's been given to us because the reason, when I say given to us, this natural killer cell line, the reason cancer cells and viruses like Ebola, how Ebola kills patients today, is that it actually attacks, believe it or not, the natural killer cells and kills the natural killer cells. And that's why patients die of Ebola. And, how, and why do we actually die of a cancer? It turns out the natural killer cells have these inhibitory receptors in them, and it, it should because otherwise it would be killing all our own normal cells and causing autoimmune disease. And what a cancer cell does, it actually activates these inhibitory receptors and puts the natural killer cell to sleep. So you have what we call this immune suppression effect or immune surveillance, or loss of immune surveillance. It turns out this natural killer cell line that we've actually now been able to build has no inhibitory receptor, so it cannot be put to sleep. And that's why we could target it and target it against either an infectious related cancer or a cancer that actually has its own antigenic secretion, which we call neoepitopes. So what's exciting now is that we've now discovered in patients hundreds and hundreds of what we call new epitopes, meaning antigens that are on the cancer cell that is unique to the cancer cell and even unique to the patient's own body, which is exciting, which means you can't hurt the body if we can find an antibody to that epitope and attach it to this holy grail natural killer cell. I think you know what we 're doing and are presenting is highly disruptive as you can carry well, right? <laughs> uh, to many industries, yep. I mean not just even whether it be to the semiconductor industry, whether it be the farming industry, whether it to be the academic industry, the grant making industry, the NGOs even so um, I think that 's a challenge which you recognize, but I think what 's exciting, and I maybe haven 't mentioned this. But the day will come, and the day is not far, and hopefully maybe the next time I present this, some more of this work, where a semiconductor chip is about to be launched on the world, where the whole genome sequencing could be done literally in the office, in the lab, for, in, within one hour for less than $50. Uh, I've seen that chip. I've seen the beginnings of that chip. Um, That chip, I believe, will be in our hands uh, literally within the next two to three years. That, again, is going to be another leapfrog where you can have the Bangladesh moment, where everybody could have this chip. Um, It could be trained. And that information is just through the Internet, through the cloud, Uh, information sharing and 21st century information to the treatment. So I don't think it's unrealistic. It's very disruptive. It's not unrealistic. You need capacity. You you still need the government involved. You still need education. You still need training. But you don't need to train thousands of people. You could train 50 people um, and, and have a huge impact
4: on countries.
3: I think we need both, right? I think uh, you need um, people in the trenches that actually will execute the work, and then you need the policymakers to support that, and then you need the philanthropists and you need the private sector to come and support that. So we're trying to sort of host that. Um, We'll be hosting a symposium in Jackson Hall uh, in July to bring exactly that. We're bringing the policymakers, the head of NHS, for example, and we're bringing... The CEOs of pharma companies, and we bring hopefully some philanthropists together to actually um, work together to actually execute this. I don't think, again, just like cancer, there's no single magic bullet, but I think everybody needs to get in the same boat. But you need somebody to execute the work, so you need the clinicians right from the outset.
4: Great, thank you. Okay.
3: At the policy level, I think it takes ages. So just let's talk about even this country. So the good news, for example, I'm now working with uh, Senator Frist and Senator Lamar Alexander on this thing called the FDA Modernization Act and faster cures, where we need to really change the policies just for drug approvals in this country because you can't afford... To have one drug approved every ten years, and just for the opportunity for maybe a small incremental, you need this combination therapies, whether it's for ten patients or whether it's hundred patients. So that's the first element. With regard to these NGOs and the and the government policies, I sat on the board of RAND for about four or five years, and the think tanks and the policy tanks, and got very frustrated. And for example, this thing called Compare, we we supported Compare. And to be frank, saw very little movement. Um, the World Health Organization, I'm trying to work with people like um, Nick McGurin and the um, think tank, policy tank that he's created. Um, I think you just need to give this message out. And I think the only way to sort of see it is really for them to see how this actually affects the economies. Um, you know, without the, uh, without the resources and the people, because it's affecting young and middle-aged and now elderly, that, that's the only way, I think, to really get them to move. They can understand it affects the economies. I think then there will be hopefully some change along that way. Thank
0: you. And the final question, uh, Dr. DeBas.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Uh, you will agree this has been a scintillating uh, discussion. Uh, Patrick to me is three things. First, he is a scientist and a clinician and very devoted to those, and I think you saw that this morning. Second, he is from a developing country, so he understands more than most the importance of global health and the disparity that exists between the haves and have-nots in, in the world nations. And the third thing, as you just gathered, he is uh, uh, he's innovative, he's disruptive, <laughs> he, he, he he's willing to think far beyond what most of us can do. So uh, what I want to ask Patrick is, we saw the revolution caused by the cell phone in Africa, which I think that's an enormous revolution. That's, what did it do? It, I think the Africans, even those people who can't read or write be, got to use the cell phone. And, uh, and it has changed their lives. So can we get a cell phone type of revolution where we leapfrog everything and simplify this? What was I think, I was thinking of an activated killer cell in a blood bank <laughs> all, all across Africa. Is there something I'm teasing you there? How do you, how do you see we might could you think about disrupting this whole thing to, to enable right. the transmission?
3: Well, I, I, and I think using the cell phone, not only the analogy, but the technology, right? So we are starting to build this uh, through the cell phone, through the internet, video conferencing. So if you can build video conferencing, as you could see, uh, people will be able to chat with each other and Skype. Translating that into actual real medication management or real people's management, where you could have a group like this could support quite literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming in with queries and requests, and that's what I call about mission control centre. So we could build mission control, because the whole issue is how do you scale? And, and so I, we were not in, we are, but we were not really interested in one-off projects that actually cannot scale. And because without scaling, you cannot have a sustainable, long-lasting impact. So we were looking at, at not only projects, but technologies that could scale. So today, you could create video conferencing from here to Africa, and you just it's purely Internet. You don't need to have an operator's system. You don't belong to a telecom network. If you have an Internet connection through video conferencing... Um, and you can actually measure the blood pressure, the, the temperature, the heart rate in real time. We've built these boxes that can be deployed. So when I talk about Mission Control Center and every human being being an astronaut on the planet, I, I really mean that. I think there's an opportunity for us to do that. Who's going to help us do that? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but I, But the capability is there. It's not a lot of money, truly not. And I'm going to say this. I'll make a little bit of a political statement because I'm so frustrated. When I met with President Obama and I said, please do not spend this money on this medical bridges to nowhere, we have spent $40 billion during his presidency, $40 billion funding electronic medical records in this nation that to this day do not speak to each other. Right? So you your record at ucla we 're about to spend a billion dollars at UCLA putting in a system that will not talk to UCSF will not talk so just so you know, and so the, and we 've supported forty billion dollars. Imagine if we spent ten billion of that into this mission control center for this country and for the rest of the world. That is what I was trying to actually uh, push him to do uh, and the talk about the frustration of policy. Because the arrogance of, um, of, of that and the waste I see um, is very sad. And, and hopefully, you know, the next president, whoever that may be, uh, could understand we have an opportunity to, to export this to the rest of the world. So that's the scalable answer that I think we can actually make happen. Please join me
0: in thanking Dr. Sunchiang. <laughs>